Well, if, if you're like me, maybe you've had this thought. If I could just have Jesus physically with me as my pastor, as my spiritual mentor, as my discipler, then my life would just be awesome. I would, I would be the best Christian or, or whatever. Just If I could just have Jesus physically here with me. The disciples of Jesus actually had a, a similar thought. They, they were confused that Jesus was going to leave them. And, and they wanted Jesus to be physically with them. And Jesus speaking into that fear and that confusion that the disciples were feeling as he's preparing them for his soon departure. He tells them in John 16, which is a little bit ahead of where we're at. He says, now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Then he says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper or the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so like the disciples, we just have a hard time with this, this reality that actually to have the spirit of Jesus in us is better than having Jesus physically next to us. Let me say that again. To have the Spirit of Jesus in us is actually better than to have Jesus physically next to us. It's to your advantage that I go. And that's what the disciples are wrestling with. And this text that we're going to be in today reminds us of several benefits of Jesus' leaving, His departure, and the sending of the Spirit of God into His people. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 14. And we're going to be covering verse 27 through 31. Uh, the Gospel of John is in what we call the New Testament, if you're newer to the Bible. It's the fourth book into your New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 14. The chapters are the big numbers, and the verses are the small numbers. So we're big number 14, small number uh, verse 27. And as we're turning there, as the uh, that's just a beautiful sound, isn't it? The turning of pages, I just love that. Um, as we're turning there, um, let's just remember a little bit of the context of what's going on. Over the past three or so years, the disciples uh, with Jesus have all become the closest of friends. It's easy to see Jesus as kind of like the lead pastor and the disciples are like his like associate ministers. And it's kind of this formal agreement. But these were best friends. And all, they were all varying degrees of friends. Obviously, one of them would betray Jesus. Um, these were the closest kind of friends that you could have. Three years, almost every single day, all day, talking, laughing, sharing stories, sharing burdens, hurts, fears, worries. Jesus knowing just the right thing and just when to say it. I mean, these were, I mean, just to, I don't know, get that in our guts a little bit. As we're reading this, Jesus is preparing his disciples, his closest friends, for his departure. And realistically, their hearts are filling with fear and worry and confusion. Where are you going, Jesus? And so he's in the upper room, and they just have shared Passover together and the Lord's Supper even. And now he's communicating to them about his coming uh, departure. And he, he's wanting to reassure them that his departure is actually to their benefit. It's actually not a loss, but a, a win for them. And so much like a uh, maybe picture like the way of a father would comfort his scared children. Or a good friend who knows you well speaks 
into your anxiety with peaceful words. This isn't some cold, hard doctrine from Jesus, but from a friend, a shepherd, a pastor. He's speaking into them and he knows where their soul's at and he's wanting to comfort them where they're at. So pick up with me in verse 27. Jesus, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. Verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the same Lord. You are the same pastor and friend who spoke these words to your weary friends. Lord, I just pray that your saints, your people would feel that in their guts today that you are kind, that you know where we're at. Lord, our world is anything but peaceful and anything but joyful right now. And so, Lord, I pray that by, by the power of your spirit, your voice would be heard, that we would feel your breath breathing into our lungs through your word, your God-breathed word. Give us faith this morning, Lord. Help us believe you. Help us to trust you. Lord, for those here who are this morning on our maybe not sure of who Jesus is, or maybe have heard a lot about Jesus, but just haven't committed to trusting him yet. I pray that they would see him as trustworthy and true today. So Lord, do what only you can do through your word and through your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this morning, we're gonna see three things about Jesus' departure. Three things about Jesus' departure that we learn, learn from this text. The first is that Jesus' departure is cause for peace. Firstly, Jesus' departure is actually cause for peace. Look with me again in verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. So Jesus, knowing exactly what's going on in his disciples' minds, there was anything but peace going on in the disciples' heart. Amen? Their leader, their king is, is leaving, and he's been talking about this crucifixion thing, and what is going on? You know, at this point, Peter had pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. Like, this is not the way that we're going to take on Rome. And so there's, there's anything but peace in their hearts. And so Jesus is actually wanting to, to give them his very own peace. And that's what he says right at the very beginning of this verse. Notice he says, peace I leave with you. Um, my peace I give to you. Biblically, there are a couple different kinds of peace that Jesus potentially could be talking about. One uh, could be the peace that Jesus purchased at the cross, this reconciling peace between us and God the Father. And at the cross, um, Jesus took on our sin and the punishment for our sin so that we can become friends with God because outside of Christ, we're enemies of God. We don't have peace with God. So he could be talking about this kind of reconciling work that he would soon accomplish at the cross. 
But I think that because, and that could be it, but I think because of the context, really chapter 14, 15, and 16, talking about the Holy Spirit that's going to be sent, the comforter that's coming to you, the helper that's coming to you. And then especially verse 26, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, is going to teach you all things. So I think he's talking about a peace that comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit that they could anticipate after Jesus departed and would send the Spirit. So this is a peace of the presence of God through the Spirit. That's the kind of peace Jesus is talking about. This is the peace that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and surpasses all comprehension. It's beyond the circumstance. It's beyond the things. This is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, finish it, peace, right? And we don't have to do the whole thing, but that was the, that's the one I'm wanting to look at there. The, the peace is actually a fruit of knowing God, to be in His presence, to know the Spirit. And so notice also that Jesus says that His peace is different than the, the, world, the, the peace that the world offers. He says, I give you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. There's something different about the way that Jesus gives peace and the way that the world gives peace. Now, I think the key difference is that the peace that Jesus gives is not based on circumstances, whereas the world's peace is exactly that. The peace of the world is dependent on peaceful or good circumstances. So in Jesus' day, just a little bit of uh, background here. Uh, in Jesus' day, Rome was the empire that ruled the world. And they offered what they called Pax Romana, which was this utopian type peace that uh, was afforded through military might and Roman ingenuity. And so if Rome was on top of their game, guess what? You had peace. The roads were safe. You weren't going to get robbed by pirates. There was Pax Romana. But what happens as soon as uh, Rome gets a new president? What happens as soon as a bigger empire comes in on top of Rome? What happens when the government turns on you as it would for the Christians in the first century and beyond? Well, then there's no peace. It's circumstantial. In our day, if the finances are good, if the relationships are easy, if you know marriage is going great, if the future looks bright, if there's a vacation right around the corner, if the right president is in office, there can be peace. But as soon as one of these elements is gone or diminishing or vanishing, guess what? There's no peace. That's the worldly peace. It's based on circumstances, whereas with Jesus, it's not the case. I want you to imagine with me that a little boy is going on a walk with his dad. And let's just say for our context, they're in Medford. And they're walking and the sun's out and the, it's warm, it's beautiful. But as they're going along, the sun starts to go down and it starts to get dark. And they happen to be in one of those neighborhoods in Medford that you don't really want to be at when it gets dark. Sketchy cars are driving by and going a little too slow when they're driving by. Dogs are barking. Sketchy people are walking by. The whole deal. Can you picture it? And the son, though he should be filled with fear and intimidation and anxiety about, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I would be afraid walking through a neighborhood like that at night. And yet he should be filled with fear and anxiety and worry about what's going to happen. Who are these people? A strange peace is in his heart because of his dad. He knows without a shadow of a doubt, my dad will guide me. He's with me. He will protect me if something happens. And at the end of the day, he knows where he's going. We're going to go home. 
And this is much like the peace that Jesus is talking about. It's a peace of presence. That God himself is with you. He's with me. Through the Spirit. That's why Jesus says it's to your advantage that I go. Because the Spirit of God will be with you and he will be in you. And so this is the peace that happens when we're walking with God. He gives us his his peace. And even though the world is dark and scary and seems to be getting worse, we have this peace that God is actually with us. If you've trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, your King, you've surrendered your life to him, you and I have access to the peace of Jesus himself. And so the question I want to ask out of this text, and I think that is begged out of this, this text, is are you taking hold of this benefit of Jesus' departure? Are you grabbing hold of this by faith, believing this, that this is true? I have access to this kind of peace. And the fears and anxieties about 2021, right? Is it going to be like 2020? What's going to happen? In the bumps in your marriage, in your friendships at school, and the peer pressure from your friends at school. And the financial struggles. The money's just not there. And the spiritual warfare that seeks to kill and rob you of your peace. Are you taking hold of that peace that Jesus promises? And a good diagnostic just to ask ourselves here at this point is, where do I turn when things aren't going well? Where do I turn when I don't seem to have peace circumstantially? What's my knee-jerk reaction? Maybe it's food. I just want to get into the bottom of an ice cream tub. You know, maybe it's alcohol. I just want to, you know, I want to drink just a little more than I typically do. Maybe it's social media. I'm going to veg out for nine hours tonight rather than my typical eight or whatever. You know, maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's some sin that, some vice that you go back to. Just ask yourself, let's ask ourselves, where do I turn when things are not going the way that I'd like? And this is not to shame us or to throw guilt on us, but to just know ourselves and just to ask, like, yeah, what's, what's my thing? Because it's different than my wife's. We have a different thing. You're going to have a different thing than I do. We're all comforted in different ways in things that don't satisfy. And so I think we need to train our minds when turmoil and anguish and suffering are pressing and pressuring us. We need to train our minds to believe this promise, to be renewed. In the way that we think that when the money is not coming in, we're not scrambling emotionally, but we turn to Jesus and say, Spirit of God, come upon me. I want this promise. I believe this promise. I believe that things are dark, but yet you are with me. And so I think that's, that's what this text is calling us to, to, to believe the gospel, believe that his spirit has given us peace through Christ sending the spirit into our lives. Lastly, if you don't know Jesus and you're here today and maybe you're on the fence, I I don't mean to be blunt or harsh with this, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't know peace. I I don't care how much you make. I don't care how many friends you have. I don't know how popular you are on social media. None of that matters. Um, You won't have peace. And so the simple call today for you is to turn your life over to Jesus and say, my life is a mess and it's a result of my own sin and the sins of those outside, but I need to repent of my own sin. And so I do that. I trust that you died on the cross for my sins and I want you to forgive me today. 
and I want to be yours, and I want your peace. And he'll take you right where you're at, and you will have his peace, the peace of his presence in your life today. And that's good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. So first, Jesus' departure is cause for peace. And this is such good news. Man, I could, we could just stay here all day. But we need to move on. Jesus' departure is also cause for faith. Look with me in verse 28 and 29. Particularly verse 29, but I do want to look at verse 28. Jesus says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. And he's referring probably back to chapter 14, verse 3, when he said he's going to go up into heaven and then someday I'm going to come and get you back. And he's probably talking about his second coming. I'm going to go into heaven. At some point, I'm going to come and receive you back to myself. But then he says, uh, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father, the Father is greater than I. So sadly, the disciples were so um, kind of selfishly worried about not, not having Jesus with them that they weren't rejoicing with Jesus that he was going to return to his Father. This was good news. And if you love me, you'd be rejoicing because I got to go back to the Father. But you're not sharing in this joy with me. You're not, they weren't actually being very good friends. Um, but really quick, I, do, I think there's a really helpful question that needs to be answered in this text. Jesus says, like, you should have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Why? For the Father is greater than I. Okay, so this is, makes us a little uncomfortable. Jesus is God. He's one in essence with the Father. So what, in what way would the Father be greater than Jesus? Uh, the cults will take and twist this to adopt into their own beliefs. But I think that it, it can't mean that Jesus is less in essence, because over and over throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus affirms his own shared essence with the Father. Uh, you can write these down and look at them later in John 1, verse uh, 1 through 2, John 10, verse 30, John 14, verse 9, and John 20, 28. The, the author, John the Apostle, continues to affirm Jesus' divinity, shared essence with the Father. So it can't be that. So here's a couple things that I think Jesus might be referring to, to when he says the Father is greater than I. Uh, one, the Father had relatively greater glory than Jesus did in his incarnation. The Father did not become a man. The Son did. Jesus didn't, uh, the Father didn't empty himself of divine privileges as the Son did. And so I think there's something to the Father sharing or having a, a greater, relatively greater glory in that he hadn't become incarnate. He hadn't become man. Secondly, uh, from all eternity, not just in his incarnation, but from all eternity, the Son of God was always the Son of God. He's always been begotten from God the Father. His role has always been sonly submission to God the Father. Hebrews 1, uh, verse 3, I believe it is, says that he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the logos of God. He's the word of God, meaning he's the expression of God's mind. But that couldn't be said of the Father. The Father is not the logos of Jesus. The Father is not the radiance of Jesus' glory. And so there's something about the economy of the... We're just kind of geeking out here, okay? So just a minute, we're going to move on. But the, there's something called the economy of the Trinity which there is roles in the Trinity. And the Son has always been submitted to the Father. He's always been the Son. So um, in that way, Jesus was rejoicing. I get to go be back with my Father. And uh, the disciples missed it. But again, we're looking at faith. And I do want to focus on verse 29 as we see that the departure of Jesus actually calls for faith. 
Look with me in verse 29. He says, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I've told you what's coming, so that when it goes down, you may believe. So he's saying, I'm speaking to you prophetically. I'm predicting what's going to happen so that at the, when it happens, you're not totally shocked. Jesus knew that this event that was about to happen, he was about to be pinned to a cross and crucified. It had the ability to maybe shake their faith down to the core. And he's telling them, look, I'm telling you what's going to happen so that when it happens, at the very least, you're able to say, okay, it's true. Jesus said this is going to happen. Hang tight. We're going to be okay. And so they, they would rightly see Jesus' words when all this was going down as prophetic. And so what kind of belief is this? He says, I'm doing this so that you may believe. Is it belief that Jesus is, can predict the future? Is it belief that Jesus is kind of a guru? No, I think Jesus gives the answer in John 13, 19, a little bit more specific. It says almost the same thing. He says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. In the Greek, it's ego a me, which literally means I am. Does that ring a bell? I am who I am. Yahweh. That was God's covenant name in the Old Testament. It's how he revealed himself to Moses. Remember Moses? God commissioned Moses and Moses is like, well, who do I say that you are? And God says, I am who I am. I don't know what that means, you know, or whatever. So he is Yahweh. And so this is belief in Jesus as God. And this is what he's being very clear in. I'm telling you what's going to happen because I want you to know that I am Yahweh. That's who I am. And throughout their time with Jesus, the disciples saw Jesus do this again and again. He would tell them what was going to happen, and it happened. Here's just a couple examples for us. Jesus had told Peter to go fishing, and the first catch of fish that he would get opened its mouth, and then their tax would be in it. Okay, so that's pretty awesome. I wish that happened for us, but not, you know, come April, that's not going to happen for you or me, I don't think. But it happened just like Jesus said. Uh, he, taught, he told the disciples to go get the donkey and the colt when Jesus was going to enter triumphantly into Jerusalem as the rightful king of the Jews and describing where they'd get it and how to convince the owners. It's, that was kind of a dicey deal to steal a donkey, you know, like, look, my master said that, that we could have it or whatever, you know, and it happened just like he said. Uh, he prophesied of where and how they were to eat the Passover meal. Hey, you're going to find a guy with a pitcher of water, follow him in. He's going to let you. And it happened. Uh, way back in John 6, he told the disciples that one of them, one of their number, would actually betray him. And again, he said that as they were sharing the Passover meal. And that happened. Again and again and again and again, he prophesied of how his death would happen. I'm going to die at the hand of Gentiles, and they're going to turn me over. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to hand me over to be crucified. And it happened just the way he did. Imagine the kind of faith that would bring if you were one of his disciples. Imagine if I told you tomorrow you're going to get a flat going north on the 5, and the guy who's going to come bust you out with the tow truck, his name's going to be Phil, and he's going to wear a blue jumpsuit, and he's going to be eating in and out because he was running late. And that happens. You're going to be thinking, Cody, I think he's got a gift. I'm going to trust Cody when he says stuff. And that's what the case is for the disciples. Jesus said stuff, and it would happen. 
And so they learned to have faith in this. And Jesus is, again, communicating again and again, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm telling you beforehand. And this isn't something, as you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, this isn't something new in the New Testament with Jesus. All throughout the Bible, God told his people what was going to happen so that when it happened, that they would place faith in him as Yahweh. But I want to catch the heart of Jesus here. This isn't a theological lecture on the inerrancy of Scripture. This isn't a, you know, a, um, a lecture on the nature of biblical prophecy. This is a pastoral encouragement to weary, doubting souls. This is Jesus' heart in this, what are you saying? I'm telling you, I don't want your faith to be shipwrecked, disciples. With the coming wave of doubt that's about to crash onto the disciples, Jesus wants them to be filled with faith through his faithful word. I want you to know my word is trustworthy. I know none of this makes sense. But trust my word. Saying, in our moments, our seasons of doubt, worry, anxiety, fear over the future and the unknown. Jesus actually desires you and I to have faith in his word, that he's trustworthy. He's not like this towards our worries and our doubts. Get it together, Christian. Don't you believe me? Why don't you trust me? No, he wants to shepherd us. He loves you and I. He knows we have worries. He knows we have doubts. Gosh, my wife and I are in a season of, like, we don't know what's going on. The last six months or so, we've just been waiting on the Lord. We have this ministry opportunity in Grids Pass, which we're really excited about. Having our first baby. Trying to find a place right now is, is crazy hard. And there's a lot of anxiety. If we're not careful, it just starts to well up, right? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Is God going to take care of us? And what I want us to catch is Jesus cares about that. He's not indifferent towards that. He loves you. He loves me. He knows where we're at. And I love that about Jesus. Hey, guys, I know this is tough, but I'm telling you ahead of time so that as it's happening and afterward, you may believe that I am he. Ego e me. And zooming out from this verse, much more specific than just these words from Jesus, the prophetic nature of Jesus and his ability to do this, the entirety of the word of God is trustworthy and gives faith. The whole Bible, you could be said of this. Hey, when stuff goes down, you can trust the word of God. What God has said is true. What he says about this world is real. What he says about you in Christ is absolutely true. And it can be a bedrock under our feet as the storms beat and blow and slam against our house. And we can trust him that he knows what he's doing. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How do we have faith? You struggle with faith ever? I sure do. It's the word of God. The word of God actually gets into our soul and helps us to believe that God is real. This is true. This is who I am. When he says, I will never leave you, take that into your soul and let it fill you. When he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We say, wow, that's true. And it gives us faith. So I just want to encourage us as the fears of 2021 and the financial struggles and whatever else we have going on, that God's word can be trusted. He's faithful. 
He's faithful to these disciples and he's faithful to the disciples who are, who are here in this room. So Jesus' departure is first cause for peace. Secondly, it's cause for faith. And lastly, Jesus' departure is preceded by loving obedience. Lastly, Jesus' departure is preceded by loving obedience. We see this in verse 30 and 31. Verse 30, Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Really quick, Satan himself was coming to crucify Jesus. At this point, he had already entered Judas. If you remember, before the Passover meal, he entered Judas. And then before they took the Lord's Supper, he entered Judas again. So he, like a lot of times in scripture, you see demons doing stuff. Satan says, I got this one. This is my job. And he enters Judas and he is personally going to make sure that Jesus gets crucified. But Jesus is reminding his disciples that he has nothing in me. He has no legal claim on me. Because Jesus is sinless, there's no rightful claim that Satan has on Jesus. Whereas those who are outside of Christ, as humans, we are under the rightful rule of the, the reign of Satan as the God of this world. But Jesus is reminding them, hey, he's got no part in me, yet he is coming. The ruler of this world is coming. And in verse 31, Jesus says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So this is so interesting. I just, this was one of my favorite parts of preparing this sermon. This is such a fascinating verse. It, it flies in the face of much of our Christianity. Though there are plenty of scriptures that talk about the cross as the demonstration of God's love for humanity, to which we say yes and amen. Though there are plenty of those. This is a verse that's actually saying one of the main purposes of the cross is the demonstration of the son's love toward the father. I want the world to know that I love the Father, so I do exactly as he commanded me. And this was Jesus' entire life, right? It wasn't just at the end of his life. His entire life was marked with this kind of obedience. A couple things in John. Listen to these verses. Jesus said to a group of Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Another one just like it in John chapter 12, verse 49 and 50. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Every moment of the life of Jesus was in obedience to the Father and what he wanted him to do and what he wanted him to say. Just imagine for a moment the exacting obedience of Jesus to every day of his life be exactly where the Father wanted him to be and to be saying exactly what the Father wanted him to say. You and I can't even hold a candle to that. What is that even like? Perfect obedience from Jesus. And so through Jesus' entire life, death and resurrection, the perfect, glorious, loving submission of God the Son to God the Father is megaphoned into the world. Catch this. It's as if Jesus is shouting out to the entire world, I love my Father, and I do what he tells me to do. Look at the love that we share in. This is a different view of the gospel. 
this kind of like rubs me the wrong way almost like, wait, wait a minute. But the, the cross, again, is that more than just a demonstration of God's love for you and me, it's the demonstration of the love within the Trinity that's existed from eternity past. And there's a, a depth that, that this just naturally gets underneath the veneer of Christianity. God loves me. I love, yeah, yeah. This gets under, the, uh, under the, the surface of that. And so in the gospel, hang with me, God is actually wanting to communicate much more than his love for us, but his eternal perfect love within himself that then is overflowed onto his chosen people. The love that we experience, God so loved the world. How could God be loved unless he's not more than one person? There has been a love relationship between father, son, and this should get us excited as Christians. There's been a love relationship between father, son, and spirit that's been going on forever and will go on forever. And they lacked nothing when they created us. Perfect harmony, perfect joy, perfect fellowship, like the most intense, passionate, makes you want to shout kind of love. This is who God is. And this is the love that we get to share it. This is the love that we've been invited into. It's much like a child. When a child is born into a family, the love environment that they're born into is a result of the parents' love for one another. That's the environment that they live in. So too, when we're born again into God's family, not by the will of man nor of flesh, but the will of God, it actually is we're born into God's own love relationship that he's been having within himself forever. This is pretty impressive. I mean, this is like, it's, it's kind of geeking out a little bit, but it's, this is what the gospel is. Uh, I love the way that John Piper puts it. He says, We see the love of the Son for the Father and the death of the Son for sinners so that they can participate in the love of the Son for the Father and the joy between the Son and the Father. That's the essence of salvation. To draw us out of lesser joys and bring us into an experience of the very joy of the Son for the Father and the Father for the Son. There isn't a greater joy. There isn't a greater love than that. So that's what happens. When we get saved, we actually get invited into this triune relationship of harmony and love that's been happening forever. Wow. And when we get to heaven, we're going to continue to experience the depth and meaning of that forever. Okay, so going back down to earth here a little bit. So what? Well, I, I think this, first of all, in much of our Christianity, we've been told that the entire Bible is about God proving how much he loves us and how much we mean to him. And though there is definitely truth to this, I would say that this is not the main emphasis of the Bible. The story of Scripture is focused, hear me, on the glorious love of the triune God made manifest through saving rebel sinners. So again, there's this love relationship that then is spilled over onto his creation and particularly his chosen people. We are not at the center of God's story. God is. And we get to be a part of it. And so when no one pays attention to us, when we can't get the notoriety that we seem to deserve, when others speak badly about us, let us remember, saying in humility, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about this triune God who's graciously invited us to go in 
and to partake of that love relationship. Secondly, uh, as we partake of communion today, might we be reminded anew that it's Jesus' exacting obedience to the Father that earned salvation for us, not our own. It's not our own creeds, not our own confessions, not our own works, not our quiet times, not our work ethic, not our patriotism. It's Jesus' perfect obedience that earns salvation for us. And this frees us this morning, saints, from guilt and shame and weariness. Jesus has perfectly done it for us. And he says, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And this is the righteousness that we get arrested in this morning. This is the righteousness that we celebrate in the bread and the wine. The only thing that we bring to the table this morning is sin and brokenness, whereas he graciously provides everything in his Son and the sending of his Spirit. Amen? So Jesus' departure is cause for peace, it's cause for faith, and it's preceded by loving obedience. Father, we trust your Son. We believe his words. Lord, give us peace, give us faith, and let us see anew the love that you have for your Father and the joy that you have in being with your Father that we've been invited into. Lord, give us humility in that. Help us read the scriptures rightly in that and to know our place rightly in that. In Jesus' name, amen.